How long has it been since you slept? It's coming up on the seventh day. It's okay, I checked Guinness. The record's 11. Listen, Glenn, I know who he is. Who? The killer. You do? Yes. And if he gets me, I'm pretty sure you're next. Me? Why would anybody want to kill me? Don't ask. Just give me some help nailing the guy when I bring him out. Bring him out of what? My dream. How do you plan to do that? Just like I did the hat. Have a hold of the sucker when you wake me up. Wait, wait a minute. You can't bring somebody out of a dream. If I can't, then you can all relax, because it's just a case of me being nuts. Yeah, well, I can save you the trouble. You're nutty as a fruitcake. I love you anyway. Good. Then you won't mind cold-cocking this guy when I bring him out. What? You heard me. I grab the guy in my dream. You see me struggling, so you wake me up. We both come out, you whack the fucker, and we got him. Are you crazy? Hit him with what? You're the jock. You have a baseball bat or something. Just meet me at my porch at midnight. Oh, and meanwhile. Meanwhile? Whatever you do, don't fall asleep. Hello everyone, welcome to How Was This Movie? My name is Dana Buckler, and thank you for taking just a little time out of your day to listen. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at How Was This Movie. You can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash howisthismovie. You can always email me with questions or comments at hitmpodcast at gmail.com. And finally, if you're enjoying the show, please take a moment and leave a review on whatever platform you use to listen. Okay, so in keeping with the new series, I'm entitled conversation i have invited uh one of my favorite guests that i've had on the show it's been two years but please welcome back to how is this movie kelly goodner kelly how are you today uh, i'm good i can't believe it's been two years that's so crazy i know the last time we talked we were talking about the short film that you did the long arm of the leprechaun and mm-hmm. That was phenomenal. Got a lot of great feedback on that. A lot of people reached out to me and told me how much they love the short. And I'm just curious if you could update the listeners as sort of what have you been up to for the past two years since the last time we chatted? Well, I let me see. I'm trying to think of exactly the timeline, but I want to say maybe I had already sold a couple of scripts by the time that that short came out, but maybe they hadn't been on television yet. You know, again, I I don't remember. It took me so long to edit that short (laughs) that I don't remember when exactly I sold and when things came on. Anyway, so I did some TV movies. I sold some uh, TV movies. And then I thought I was going to be uh, directing some of those. And instead, I just kept getting screenwriting work. So I've been, you know, I went from uh, like Christmas movies on TV. And now I'm doing thrillers on TV, you know, lifetime thrillers. Uh, but none of those are coming out yet. And what I have discovered is that the titles keep changing. So I guess I can't really tell you what those are. Yet. Sure. <laughs> There's no real point. They will just show up. Well, a question for you on that one. With the five years I've been doing this podcast, I've constantly see how much scripts get rewritten and, you mm-hmm. know, uh, different writers take a pass at them. 
of the screenplays that you have wrote and that have been turned into the movies, how were they pretty faithful to what you put on paper? Well, I have to say, I've the level I've been working at, they're you know low budget TV movies are most of them. So initially, it was just me. It was a spec that I wrote, my ideas. And then I would be the one implementing all of the notes. And so it was, you know, pretty faithful to what I wrote, except I had to incorporate their notes, you know, so it wasn't exactly what I wanted. I was writing to a formula to a world, you know, it wasn't necessarily my heart's passion, Um, (laughs) but, uh, but still entertaining and fun. And then once I started getting into the world of writing for hire, that's a whole other ballgame. You know, I, I would always look at like the WGA minimums you know you just fantasize like when i'm in the wga and whatever uh and i always wondered why writing for hire you got paid more because i thought well you know why you should get paid more when it's all you and you have to do it by yourself and then i learned no it's way harder (laughs) when you're getting people's notes all the time and it's like this collaborative thing and that's where a lot of stuff starts to go wonky and where even i have stepped away from projects and just said let someone else do the next draft because but I just I want to move on to something else. And this is not going in a direction that I think is fruitful. <laughs> yeah. So it's kind of it's become like that. You know, it's become a little more like sometimes I'll sell a concept. Sometimes I'll just do a rewrite of someone else's script. It's become much more fluid, the different combinations of who can participate on a project. Whereas I kind of think I sort of prefer the spec world, even though you don't know for a fact that you're going to get paid. I mean, you know, I I do whatever, but um, I kind of prefer to work alone on my own thing. And it just seems to be a clearer story and vision in the end that they are even happier with, you know, and they get made faster, I find, because it's already, you know, together and makes sense. So, yeah, I'm, I'm still kind of figuring out all of those different possibilities. And then now I'm getting into pitching TV shows and writing pilots and things like that, which is a whole other thing. Um, so well, I've, I've just got my toe in a lot of stuff. Let me ask you this. And, and this is just, just a brief, brief question here before we get into the main topic of discussion. When pitching TV shows, how much has the landscape changed over the past 10 years with the amount of streaming services and, and different, uh, content providers that are out there? I mean, is it, is it easier to pitch a show because there's way more content creators out there or is it more difficult now? I think it's much easier. I mean, I say as someone who doesn't yet have one of my shows on the air, but but it's I feel much more welcomed into the world than I used to. Like when I started my career, I guess, when I first moved out to L.A. and started working in the film industry, uh, I worked at CAA and there was such a in the story department and there was such a clear line between TV and film. And the two worlds did not intersect. You know, you barely even got coverage of any TV scripts. It was just they were completely different. And the TV world felt like a very closed world because there's no such thing really as independent TV. You know, you can't just I mean, it just costs more money. Now they're web series and things like that. But it's you had to work at kind of like a network level. And so it's hard to find out who runs the shows and who you even talk to. And and it was just it was just a very different thing. And now I find people, even though I hadn't done TV and TV movies are a different thing still. They're not quite movies. They're not quite TV. They're, you know, somewhere in the middle and they're not quite like VOD independent films. And uh, anyway, now I have people coming to me, you know, what projects do you have? And 
you know, that certainly was not happening before. Okay. And and that they can go all different kinds of places and they're looking for different kinds of people. And that I'm, you know, a woman who likes horror and horror shows are big. That's kind of appealing to people. So I definitely feel, you know, much more welcomed and encouraged even like the people are even hungry for it. But that also could just be that I'm, you know, a produced writer now, whereas I wasn't before. And that changes things, too, because as soon as I was produced, the way people dealt with me changed. And I didn't really expect that. I mean, it's still, you know, a hustle all the time, but they take you more seriously. Please, as always, keep me updated so I can keep the listeners updated, because I just think it's really exciting what you're doing. And, and it's been awesome just to see you know, the things that you've got accomplished since the last time we chatted. So that's awesome. Yeah. Well, you know, another thing that I did was um, I started putting my um, well, things were happening so fast. And and I started because I was writing so much more, you know, for pay like that was the only way I was making my money. I started uh, writing down you know, what I had learned, you know, from when I knew nothing until, you know, I actually started selling and what that you know, learning gap was like. And so I, um, I ended up writing like five screenwriting reference books in the meantime as well. Um, that should come out hopefully by the end of the year called Sceneclopedia. And they're just lists of every scene in movies, 25 per genre. And, uh, so that people can see exactly how much fits in a script, because that was how I learned how to do it. That's incredible. Oh, my goodness. I can't wait to hear more about that. I can't wait to read that. that yeah, it's a lot of work. <laughs> but that was that was the way that I finally learned. I was like enough of calling this plot point this and blah, blah, blah. How many, you know, scenes are in this thing? <laughs> and, uh, you know, how much can it fit? And what are the movements like, you know, in every 10 minutes or whatever? And and that was how I did it. And I was I was very stupid. I initially wrote them all in spiral notebooks. <laughs> so then I was, I thought, you know, I got to get rid of these notebooks. And that was how the whole thing started is I just started transcribing them, typing them up. And I was like, you know, this is crazy. Someone could benefit from this. So then I thought, well, I should turn them into actual books. That's awesome. I can't wait to read those. So now let's say you said you're hoping to have them published by the end of the year. Yeah, well, because they're five different books. I've got horror, drama, comedy, thriller, and action. So really horror is done and drama is done. You know, I, anyway, it's just kind of a process of um, whether to release them all one at a time or all at once. And because I've had these other things I've been doing, um, I just haven't gotten around to finishing those off and getting the quotes, really the promotional stuff uh, done for them is what's held it up. Okay, well, I definitely have, I know for a fact I've got a lot of listeners that are into screenwriting or are aspiring screenwriters. So I absolutely want to have you back for an episode where we just, you know, go over the books. So that's definitely something I, I want to talk to you more about for sure. And I know that a lot of the listeners out there are going to be really interested in this. So that's, that's awesome. That's really okay. awesome. Please keep me updated on that one. Yeah, I'm hoping. I mean, it was just such a painful process to go from wanting to be a writer and kind of knowing you're supposed to be a writer, but being so bad at it <laughs> to finally, you know, figuring out kind of what you're doing and being able to do it reliably and get paid for it. And so it's I feel like a lot of times when people, you know, write books about it, it's later and they've sort of lost touch with that, 
lostness. <laughs> and so I wanted to kind of get it down. Like, I know where you were. I was just there, but like, I'm losing touch with it by the day, you know? And so I wanted to kind of just cement it. Um, and also do books where it wasn't telling you how you had to write a screenplay by any means. It was like, you can fill it with anything. It's just, this is what is in these movies. It is fact. I want to read the horror one first and foremost. Uh, can you just give the listeners an idea? That was my favorite. Yeah. <laughs> give me, give the listeners a, a, a few of the films that are covered in the, in the horror, uh, the horror book. It's, so like I said, it's 25 in each um, book. And I went with the main ones, you know, because for me, it's the ones you refer to all the time so that you don't have to throw the movie on again and again and again. And so I pretty much did the main ones. I did A Nightmare on Elm Street. I did what I, oh, well, then some that are just, you know, kind of for me, Coppola's Dracula. <laughs> and then I did like some classics like Frankenstein. So it's, it's a little bit of everything, but they're all very well known. Awesome. Well, that's perfect because that's going to perfectly the howling. The howling. Uh, you know, I almost want to go off the record and just ask you about the howling sequels, but I'll do that later. We'll do that later because <laughs> I've got I've got some yeah. thoughts on those. That's a whole other thing. So we uh, so that's a perfect segue into today's conversation. Now, like I'd mentioned earlier, I I've started a new series where it's it's just a long form conversation about a particular franchise. I've already done the Star Wars one. I've got a few other ones that I'm looking forward to. But A Nightmare on Elm Street is a film that I have been, for a lack of a better term, plagued by my entire life. And I'll get to that in just a minute. Me gonna... as well. I just want you to know. Absolutely. This is a safe space. I am Because we're almost the same age. I'm a couple years younger. So I suspect we'll have similar experiences. You know, they were playing on TV at the same time. And it, yeah, they were they were there my entire childhood. Absolutely. And I want to be clear when I say Traumatized play. Me. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, but before we get to A Nightmare on Elm Street, I, I do want to encourage listeners to check out the episode I did with Jim Hemphill on the career, life and career of Wes Craven. We talked a little bit about well, I shouldn't say we talked a little bit. We talked extensively about his career prior to A Nightmare on Elm Street. So I invite all the listeners to check that out because we're not probably going to dive too deep into The Last House on the Left or The Hills Have Eyes right. or Swamp Thing or anything like that. Um, mm -hmm. But I wonder if, Kelly, if you could talk about 1978 through 1984. Now, the reason I bring up 1978 is that is the year that John Carpenter released Halloween and basically mm -hmm. defined or announced to the world the slasher genre. And like any successful film, uh, any successful film genre, it is going to be mercifully copied throughout right. the years. So please just talk a little bit about your thoughts on Halloween and, and what we got in the six years before Nightmare on Elm Street. It's actually something that I talk about all the time in the house, just because that's what I do in my house. Halloween was one where, because it was so copied, when I finally saw Halloween, you know, as a teenager, I didn't really get what the big deal was. And and I know that that's, you know, and I love John Carpenter. I mean, Big Trouble in Little China is one of my favorite movies. I love Christine. I love In the Mouth of Madness. I mean, I love you know, Prince of Darkness. I love uh, John Carpenter. And Halloween was a little bit inaccessible to me because I wasn't seeing those things for the first time. I had seen them you know, through 
however many copycat slasher movies. So when I went back and saw the original, it seemed a little bit mild, you know. Sure. <laughs> and and so over the years, I have you know gained an appreciation. But I was a little like that even with Star Wars because you saw you know the sequels first and you saw merchandise first and and so it was a little hard to try to put myself in the mindset of what it would have been like to never have encountered that before. And in general, I mean, the slashers, I do think that uh, Nightmare on Elm Street kind of, I would say, I guess, give, gave it new life. I would say that it was probably Nightmare on Elm Street that that kept it going until Scream could kind of like pass the baton and keep it going again. That Wes Craven kind of tends to do that to, you know, keep it alive, keep the ball alive. Because um, then we got all those, I know what you did last summer and, and whatever. Um, and then, but Halloween, I mean, I guess you could say that maybe some of the Bava's, the Italian horror movies might have gotten there first, but still Halloween was the one that brought us, you know, teenagers getting slashed by a madman yep. in a very commercial way. And we had so many, I mean, I the list goes on and on. You know, when you look at... 78 through 84 when the dust settles there there's really three franchises that that came out emerged out of that halloween friday the 13th and a nightmare on elm street uh friday the 13th for me is a film it's it's a it's a very unique film in that it evolved into something completely different and it took three films to get there whereas when we get to nightmare on elm street it was right out of the gate uh, quick thoughts on the original Friday the 13th. Well, they actually just did a 3D series uh, here in L.A. And so I I kind of revisited the early Friday the 13th to get ready for Friday the 13th 3D. <laughs> and, you know, it, it is interesting how long it took them to figure out what it was about this concept that was appealing to people, <laughs> you know, or that was going to work. Like that it was, first of all, that it was Jason, you know, not the mom. And, and I think Nightmare on Elm Street sort of did that, too, where they didn't quite realize what it was that was important about the series. But Friday the 13th, it was kind of when I was growing up a, you know, Rolling Stones, Beatles kind of thing. You had to choose Freddy or Jason. And so I was always a Freddy girl. And so Jason, I was a little slower to get to. I just thought, like, Freddy can get you in your dreams. How is that a contest? Yeah. You know, it's and Freddie can talk and he's, you know, funny and whatever. And so only in the past probably handful of years have I really started to appreciate Jason. And I do think part of it was that the movies changed so much from film to film and they got wildly comical. And then, you know, I like the reboots of Friday the 13th, too. And then they got super gritty again. And I, I think there's just kind of a primal, simple savagery to Jason and to the plots. Like even the characters not having these, except for, I think it's Tommy Jarvis is the Corey Feldman character in the Friday the 13th series. Other than him, there isn't really plot. There's just mayhem, you know, just pick them off. Whereas Freddie was the plottier one, you know, and I, and I guess Michael Myers a little bit too. Okay, do you have uh, a favorite of the Friday the 13th franchise? Um, I think it is four. Okay. I think that's the one where we get Corey Feldman and yep. Crispin Glover. Yep. Uh, that's that's my favorite. I like his whole 
character. I mean, and, and Nightmare on Elm Street does that too, where they pick up these different characters. Like, you'll be our protagonist, Nancy, and then Kristen will be our protagonist, and then Alice will be our protagonist. And uh, in Friday the 13th, I guess there was mainly just... I think it's Tommy, Tommy Jarvis. I, I think so. I mean, looking, I'm, I'm, I'm not as well versed in the Friday the Thirteenth films as I am with the Nightmare on Elm Street. I've certainly seen them all. To my recollection, and I'm sure I'll be corrected if I'm wrong by listeners, but I think the the tar- Tommy Jarvis three film arc from four, five, and six. I think that's the only, with the exception of Jason, that's the only recurring character in the entire franchise. Yeah, I mean, in the beginning there is. Wait, I think it's the girl in two. She survives like a scene in three, That's right. <laughs> you know, before she gets killed. The one who pretends to be his mom. That's right. Um, but th- but she doesn't get a whole, you know, story. And then there's um, the girl who's telekinetic later on. I forget what her name is. Well, I know that's you know, from she can, seven, a new blood. Yeah, yeah late, late, late. Um, she has a little bit more story you know, to her, she's more of a character, but in general, it's just, you know, pick them off. So let's talk about a nightmare on Elm street. And to do that, I'm going to just briefly tell you my first time seeing, and I, I touched on this on a previous episode that I released almost four years ago when I did a, <laughs> a little retrospective, just sort of on the history of a nightmare on Elm street. I saw the film in 1985 and uh, 19, mm. 1985 for me, I would have been seven years old. Right. I'm the youngest of, of four siblings. So when you do that, I've got oh, a brother. Oh, no. Exactly. You didn't stand a chance. I didn't. No, not at all. <laughs> I've got two older sisters and an older brother. I remember. I'm an only, so I was sheltered for a little while. Gotcha. <laughs> so we, so my, my family, we had, you know, the family VCR. This is the, this is the middle 1980s. We were, a, we were a hip 1980s family. We had the, mm-hmm. uh, we had the technology mm-hmm. and. My mother was super strict when it came to what I was allowed to watch. And I'm just going to say for the record, and if she's listening, because I know she listens to the show, I super appreciate that. I <laughs> Looking back. I on, have the opposite. And I appreciate that. So <laughs> it can work out either it, way. It can. It can. So I, I understand where she was coming from. But that being said, she wasn't as successful as she endeavored to be. That mm-hmm. being that, we always had the friends in the neighborhood who, uh-huh. whose parents didn't mind what they watched. And we had kind of an underground uh, VHS thing going on where my brother came into my bedroom on a Saturday morning with a copy, a rented copy of the original Nightmare on Elm Street. And we watched it at seven years old. And that, <laughs> that, that triggered something in me that well one forced me to sleep with my bedroom light on i kid you not for at least three years i mean at least three years that's how traumatized i I was by it yeah and it's to this day still a movie and i'll admit it with everyone listening it is still a movie the original one that i can't watch alone in the dark i have i have to watch it with somebody else i have to have that that giddy laughter whenever something scary is happening on screen because people often forget but the original nightmare on elm street film is absolutely terrifying on so many different levels so why don't you take me through your first experience with the original nightmare on elm street well for me i was you know my parents didn't really stop me from seeing anything they took me to see you know rambo four in the theater (laughs) you know i just 
whatever. But they weren't really into horror. So horror wasn't something that was just naturally in my house. Um, and I kind of self-regulated <laughs> with the horror because I knew I couldn't handle it. Um, but I knew about Freddy Krueger because I'm, you know, I think two years younger than you. Almost. Um, it's almost my birthday. And uh, so I... Probably from the time I was in preschool, like four years old, I knew who Freddy Krueger was. And I knew it not from watching the movies, but from kids on the playground talking about him. And so my first experience with him was kind of like the kids in the movie who kind of have heard like a whisper here. And and like I knew the song, the jump roping song, and that was terrifying. And you would hear little things about, you know, he can get you in your sleep and, you know, one, two, Freddy's coming for you and all of this stuff. But I hadn't actually seen the movies and I knew kind of what he looked like. And then um, I was probably maybe seven and there was going to be like a big haunted house where they cleared out a grocery store of all the food and everything and just made a haunted house maze in it. And the big reveal in the end was going to be Freddy. Oh, no. And I was so traumatized and my parents were so excited, you know, and <laughs> it was like me and my friend and her parents. And uh, so we're waiting in this long, 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 long line. And I'm like crying. I don't want to go. I don't want to see Freddie. And I was so scared. And then so we finally get there and he wasn't at the end. He like poked his head out early. And I start screaming and hitting my dad. No, no, no. You know, Freddie, go away. And I'm like, I was a subdued child. I was like Wednesday Adams or something. Just very, you know straight man and uh freaking out and my dad god love him was laughing and um freddie was like bring her back here and my dad's like all right oh. and i'm like are you kidding me the one thing you don't do is go to a private room with freddie krueger and so freddie brought me like through the curtain and took off his mask and like gave me a snickers and i was so mad at everyone I was just furious, but like took the Snickers. But so that was my first encounter. My first encounter with Freddy Krueger really was in person. And it was horrifying. Um, and then after that, even before I saw the series, was um, the TV show that was on every weekend. Did you ever watch that, Freddy's Nightmares? Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. I've seen, I've actually seen, they did two seasons of, I'm, I'm, Sad to report, I've seen every episode because the first one was actually the very, very first episode was really good. I know. So, I just watched it. I looked it up online and it's about the trial yeah. of Freddie. And so and it was written by Michael DeLuca, who did um, I mean, who oversaw a lot of the, you know, new line Freddie stuff and wrote in the mouth of madness and whatever. And um, yeah, it was really good. And I, I always kind of wanted the series to get more into that stuff. Because it was, you know, for the parents to be driven to that, I kind of wanted to see his mayhem. But it's so horrible, you know, to watch him killing children, yes. chasing children, whatever. You know, you kind of don't want to see it. But, yeah, so it was it was really that show. So I kind of had these glimpses and rumors of Freddy. And then with me, it was kind of like the older sibling thing. Uh, I had a friend when I was 13 and Freddy's dead had already come out. And her brother had gone off to college, but he had left behind his Nightmare on Elm Street tapes. And so I watched them all at her house in a marathon. I was like, it's safe. He's dead. And so <laughs> I watched all of them in a row at 13 alone while my friends, it was Florida. They went out and like tanned outside. 
and I stayed inside thrilled for every glare on the TV screen. And I was like, but you know, now's the time I'm 13 years old. I can handle it. And that's really when after Freddie, I was like, I can watch anything. And then I watched, you know, every horror movie I had never seen. Okay. And so, still do. So let's talk about what, in your opinion, what set the original Nightmare on Elm Street apart from other slasher films that came out in that time period? Well, I mean, I think really it's the ideas behind Freddy, because again, I was scared of him never having seen the movies just because the ideas were so haunting. And I think that that's something that modern movies, modern horror doesn't do as much. And yet when there's a big hit, that's what it is. It's an idea that gets in people's heads. Like, you know, A Quiet Place, it was the idea of that. And Get Out, it was the idea. I mean, not that they weren't, you know, good movies, but and I think with Freddie, it was the idea that everyone can relate to, I mean, twofold. One, you know, the difficulty of staying awake, like how painful and awful it is to try to stay awake when you're really sleepy and that if you fall asleep, you will die. Um, because then there was also, I don't know if it's true, but all the kids would always say, you know, if you die in your sleep, you die in real life. And I don't know if that was a thing before Freddie, but it certainly was after Freddie that, you know, if you fall in your sleep, you'll die or, you know, in real life or something. And so those two ideas really, I think, were what made it stick and gave it so much potential for exploration. And then I think once you get to Dream Warriors, then you start getting all this backstory, like the backstory was always interesting. But then in Dream Warriors, it was like, oh, my gosh, now we have all, all this other stuff to get into. You know, like who his mom was and what happened. And and so it was always these kind of planted, like Freddy is in your head. That was, I think, what was always so scary about it. Because even if Freddy was scary, gritty Freddy, or if Freddy was funny Freddy, it always kind of worked. You know, it there was something deeper than just what the exact tone of the movie was. Because that changed. Yes. So I, I, I rewatched a nightmare on Elm street yesterday during the day with the lights on <laughs> and uh and and what i wrote what one of the notes that i wrote down and it, it deals with uh amanda wise the the actress uh, mm -hmm. or T tina's character uh, tina excuse me and i wrote down what i felt was fundamentally different from the other slasher films of that era in that freddie teases his victims in some case, he it mm -hmm. he, he drag he drags out the inevitable, and mm -hmm. and and, I, and that was certainly something. Not so I don't think not so much in a Nightmare on Elm Street two when we get to that. Uh, certainly three, four, five, and and so on. Certainly it would yeah. it would become basically a, a signature thing that he would do. But I think that's what was so terrifying for me. Yeah, like he wanted first and foremost, he wanted you to be scared. You know, he wanted in your head. Yeah. And that that was that was pretty terrifying. So that's that's really let's let's just talk about a few of the characters in the first film. Mm -hmm. The protagonist, Heather Langenkamp, mm -hmm. Nancy. Thoughts on her? Thoughts on her? Just in in the first film. I don't know. I don't know that <laughs> that I have so many thoughts on Nancy. <laughs> um, I mean, I again, I get so caught up in the mythology of it. That's what's kind of interesting to me. And so I always wondered, you know, why Nancy? And then, um, you know, what, I mean, 
did she just sort of emerge as the final girl because she wore a skirt and Tina was having sex? I don't, you know, I don't know. But I always felt like he had particular beef with her family. And so I kind of, I was very interested, and maybe because, just because I'm a girl, I was very interested in her and her mom. That was always fascinating to me, is what was her mom like before she started drinking? Was she more like Nancy? Did she have like a fire like Nancy has? You know, because Heather Langenkamp really plays it as, ah, you know, she's got a lot of kind of fire about it. She's not namby-pamby, you know, about like that's not how she survives. She survives by fighting. And anyway, so she was always interesting. But then the where the way her character went, where she was like this superstar grad student in Dream Warriors, <laughs> I'm not... <laughs> Exactly sure I bought that. Yeah, I mean, I do think that Freddie needed someone that strong or else it's it's not really fun to torment right. people who aren't fighting back, you know? And I kind of thought, you know, later in the series, it gets into like that Freddie was bullied. So I kind of sort of see Freddie as like a bully in the dreams and she's, you know, the one who knows to stand up to him. This film is, of course, famous for the uh, introducing Johnny Depp character. Right. And uh, I mean, I'd love to say, hey, listen, there was flashes of what Johnny Depp was going to become. But that's not really the case in this film. He's sort of just, I think, a serviceable boyfriend who's going to get murdered. Uh, any thoughts on Depp in this movie? Yeah. I mean, again, I like I think he has a lot of charm, kind of like Skeet Ulrich, you know, in Scream. But, yeah, I don't know that you would necessarily know he was going to become one of the biggest stars ever. Like, he he definitely had something, no question. It was there. Um, But, uh, yeah, and beautiful feathered hair. Sure. (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, yeah, I I mean, and I always enjoy him. Like, his kill is one of the best kills, I think, still, and most famous in the series. But uh, and then he comes back. He clearly enjoyed it because he came back in six for like that little cameo. This is your brain on drugs thing on the TV. And apparently what was I think Wes Craven wanted him in New Nightmare, but was like intimidated to ask him. And then Johnny Depp ran into him at some point and was like, I totally would have done it. That would have been awesome. You know, a few other characters I love. I love John Saxon in this film. You know, Mm -hmm. this this film really speaks to the, you know, And it was something that was on the Never Sleep Again documentary where, you know, that fundamental thing where the parents never believe the children. Right. Well, and, you know, that's what I was going to say was different about this series, too, is how involved, involved, but not involved, like, but how much of a factor the parents are in the series, because every parent expects their kids to have nightmares, but they, you know, never live with them. And of course, for it to be teenagers, they still have to live with their parents. So it's not like they're at camp. It's not like they're babysitting at someone else's house. It's, you know, the horror happens in their own house while their parents are there generally. And it's interesting because the parents, you almost feel like, especially with Ronnie Blakely and John Saxon's characters, Mm -hmm. that the first time Nancy mentions Fred Krueger's name and says it, you know, they look at each other and it's, it's just that there's that realization, I think, that they know, they know almost that she's not lying. But they're, right. but they're, but in, in a way to protect her, they're not going to admit it. At least not until Ronnie Blakely has a few drinks and takes Nancy into the basement. And that touches on a, a, a deleted scene. I'm not sure if you know about this deleted scene that was when uh, Ronnie Blakely explains to Nancy 
that, you know, this is why this is who Fred Krueger was and this is what we mm-hmm. did. And there's that now famous deleted scene that you can find online where she explains that the reason why the parents did what they did is because Freddie had killed their children. And that, uh, like that Nancy had had a sibling. Exactly. Yes, exactly. And and it's mm-hmm. there, that I think that's a really interesting deleted scene of the film. You want to know who Fred Krueger was? He was a filthy child murderer who killed at least 20 kids in the neighborhood. Kids we all knew. Oh, Mom. It drove us crazy when we didn't know who it was. But it was even worse after they caught him. Did they put him away? The lawyers got fat and the judge got famous, but somebody forgot to sign the search warrant in the right place and Kruger was free just like that. What did you do, Mother? A bunch of us parents tracked him down after they let him out. We found him in an old abandoned boiler room where he used to take his kids. Go on. We took gasoline. Put it all around the place and made a trail of it out the door. Then lit the whole thing up and watched it burn. What gave you the right to take the law into your own hands? Because he took it into his hands to kill our kids. Glenn, Rod, Tina. They all had a brother or sister once. You too, Nancy. You weren't always an only child. But he can't get you now. He's dead, honey, because mommy killed him. It is interesting that, you know, they're all only children, seemingly. Yes, that's that's exactly it. But, it, but it's an interesting thing that he didn't, that Wes chose to, to take this out, take that particular scene out. But the big question I want to ask you, and I'm going to ask you, for each film is what were your thoughts on Freddy Krueger in the original Nightmare on Elm Street? His just the way he is presented on screen. I mean, I guess Freddy in the first one felt more like, I guess to me, he was a little scarier because he felt like an actual creep, you know, in real life. You know, he looked, you would see kind of his whole body and he was standing there and he looked like a regular man. You know, and he seemed a little bit more, even though he was, you know, evil and he would talk about like, this is God and cut off his fingers and horrible things like that. He did seem a little bit more like a normal real life boogeyman. You know what I mean? I do. Um, Whereas later he changed and, and even just the way he was filmed and it could have been for, you know, production reasons, but he was filmed more in close up later, you know, and he was more of this kind of silhouette in the early or in the original film. And so the idea, he was more in the darkness and everything. And he was more just an idea of like, when you see someone walking behind you, you know, on the street at night, whereas later he got a little further away from that. And that, you know, I don't know if that that's good or bad, but that was, and and also he seemed angrier in the first one. He had a lot more rage in the first one. Like he, it was personal to him. Whereas later, you know, 
he's further away from the Elm Street children. You know, we're further generations from them. And it just didn't seem quite as connected to whatever drove him to do this in the first place. Would you say going through and just to follow up on what you just said there, this to me is the most terrifying iteration of Freddy Krueger of all the films, in my opinion. That's that's how I feel Mm -hmm. about it. And we'll get to that as we talk about each subsequent film. But this is, yeah, you you, you nailed it. He- yeah, in terms of actual scares, I mean, and, and there was something even to the way that the dreams were. They were more real-life locations. You know, it was her stairs. It was her bedroom. It was, you know, her living room and her basement. And it was behind the house in the alley. Whereas later, you know, it's the beach. <laughs> it's <Yeah>. like other <laughs> crazy places. And so it, it was much more personal to what you already have nightmares about, you know, as like someone getting in your house. And so he was, he was definitely scarier for that reason. Just going through the movie, just playing in my head right now, the most iconic scenes in the film, for example, for me is, you know, Glenn's death, which again, you mentioned it. It's, it's Mm -hmm. one of the most brutal of the entire franchise. What about the bathtub sequence? Yeah, that's the one for me. The (laughs) The bathtub. I mean, both of those are probably equally iconic, I guess. But the bathtub one for me was always the one. It just, again, it just seemed more real and accessible. And you do that more often, you know, I guess fall asleep in the bathtub and that he pulled her down. Yeah, that's, you know, like that he waited for the right time and then pulled her down. And I guess we'll get to it later. But when the reboot recreated it, he didn't pull her down. Again, I mentioned the whole being traumatized as a child, and that was a whole nother situation that I was dealing with. Because, <laughs> so, showers so it, only. It, it, it became showers at a, at a much younger age for me than, than, than the bath anymore. So any closing thoughts on the original Nightmare on Elm Street before we sort of jump into the, the franchise as a whole? One thing I will say, I mean, it's the one you always return to. You have to keep returning to like what as it starts to veer off track here and there, or as something that you like gets developed, you always kind of go back to the original and like, was that there? Was the root of it there? And I do think even though it went off in some crazy directions, the root of a lot of it was there. Like the whole nun thing. I mean, he a crucifix is kind of keeping him from coming through the wall. And he does mention God. And, and so I do think there's a little element of that there. But the main thing I think that the first one had was just in terms of the filmmaking I mean, and aside from Wes Craven, always bringing everything back to the primal, like what primally separate from society are we most afraid of? And so I think that's why it sticks. But also just in the filmmaking, it's so classically made. And the color, I think, is something that the other films lose. I mean, a lot of them stay colorful, but he was using color as symbol. So it was treated a little more like a regular film, not just like franchise horror film like he uses the color blue all the time like we always think of it as kind of having a red door the house but in his it had a blue door and her bathtub pillow is blue her phone is blue like a lot of the things are blue 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 and i think he was using a lot of those things to get at us psychologically and subconsciously that later the films didn't really do so i think a lot of that was kind of lost later interesting that's really good that's you know, now you've got me going, you're right, it was a blue door. Like, I didn't even yeah. pick up on that. Like, you're right, it was. 
Well, and then when he pulls Ronnie Blakely into the bed at the end in the climax, it's like it looks like the blue door. The bed becomes that exact same color blue and he pulls her in. So it's almost like that door to the house is like a door to dreams and everything that is blue is kind of a door to dreams throughout the whole movie. And I never really noticed that before. Oh, and another thing I never noticed, maybe this maybe you didn't notice this and this is obvious to everyone. I never realized as many times as I've seen it that Ronnie Blakely and John Saxon seem to be divorced, yeah. that they don't live together. Yeah, I, I always picked up on that because of the way that they spoke did. to each other. Yeah, because. Yeah, I mean, when I really I put on the subtitles to see exactly what they were saying and I was like, wait a minute, they don't live together. Because it's all it's all kind of, you know, subtle, like they they just give you a hint about all the parents that like things are not OK here. But I never you know, quite got that, you know, he's not around. Yeah. I, yeah, I picked up on that. I just be, yeah, just based on some of the dialogue, the way they would talk to each other just didn't it just appear to me. It just didn't appear to be a, a, a happily married couple or even an unhappily yeah, I mean, married I, couple. I knew they had problems. <laughs> you know, I knew they weren't a good relationship, but I didn't realize he didn't live there. And yeah. I don't think he does. I'm, thinking of the scene when they're at the funeral and the parents are talking for the first time. They may be talking for the first time on screen. I, I might be wrong about that. Well, they, meet, they meet right after Tina's death in his office. That's right. And and he says to her, what was she doing over there? Like he doesn't live with them. So he wouldn't know. Yeah. So there are a couple things. And then also with um, Glenn's parents, when Nancy gets the bars on her windows, you know, she says, well, Marge is all alone. Exactly. Or some, yeah. something like that. And I was like, oh, you know, he's not he's not just working hard. He doesn't live there. And when at the funeral, when he says, you know, you make sure she gets home or take her home. And he, she's like, I'm do better than that. I'm going to get her help and then takes her to the, right. to the Dream Institute scene, which. Right. By the way, can we just talk about that just for a moment? Um, the one thing that was always a little perplexing for me and it, it's never addressed is that whole sequence where they they're doing an observation on her on her dreaming and it's very tense when he says you know what a typical nightmare would be you know plus or minus five or right. six and and you know it goes right. it goes way off the charts and and when you know she pulls his hat freddie's hat out and she pulls it out and there's that that whole, the camera sort of holds on the just a, it's like a medium shot just holds on the three of them and mm -hmm. the doctor's got like kind of a kind of a puzzled look on his face and uh -huh. is nobody like what the fuck is going on like is, right. Yeah. So I just always thought that was a little interesting that that was never explored a little bit more that people weren't like, uh, yeah, she clearly didn't have that hat with her when she came in here. So, anyway. yeah, I mean, I do think it just kind of all keeps coming back to like no one believes kids about anything, <laughs> you know, uh, like because I think in the kitchen later, her mom says something about I don't know how you pulled the trick with the hat or so something yeah. like that. But I got rid of that filthy thing, something and so, like, they're still just trying to make excuses, which, you know, makes sense in a they don't want Freddie in their head kind of way, like that they sort of know how he works and know not to let him in. Like the theme of the movie, which I think Wes Craven kind of sticks with later is, you know, what to how much to pay attention and how much to ignore. And I think that that's a big the main question really with kids is how much to hover and be protective and how much to like let them be free and you know when does that turn into like ignoring them and then bad things are happening to them and so with freddie it's like should we tell you will that help you or will not telling you help you will like 
trying to forget help or will trying to deal with it help. You know, in the end, it's like Nancy turns away from him and that supposedly makes him go away. It, the only problem is it doesn't make him go away. <laughs> so no. I don't know that that's really the solution. And that's a very interesting way to segue into 1985's A Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2, Freddy's Revenge. Because here is uh, the original Elm Street is very successful, extremely successful by horror movie standards and extremely successful in relation to the budget of the film versus, you know, the box office take. You know, but of course, famously, Wes Craven had to sign a lot of rights away to to get the film finished. So New Line now has, you know, an IP, you know, before IP was really a thing. Right. And to say it was rushed into development, I think would be, be, that's an understatement. But the film we get is so vastly different than the original film for a mm-hmm. number of different reasons. The biggest being that Wes Craven had no involvement whatsoever in the film. Right. And this is a movie where, and we'll get into it where, you know, I think Freddy is equally as terrifying, not equally, but definitely very scary in this film. But what are your initial thoughts on Freddy's revenge? You know, it kind of goes back and forth because it's got this reputation, you know, like the whole gay subtext kind of became the main story for so long and like oh it's this campy thing and people like to laugh at it because i mean clearly there are so many i mean i i just i don't know that you can deny it there's there's this strange homoerotic kind of subtext to it but then when i was you know and so i had that in my head and then when i rewatched it, I was like you know this isn't as off the wall as i remembered it being you know, it's you can kind of see where they got their ideas from the original movie. They just went somehow in a weird direction. Like and it does have a lot more comical things that don't have to do with Freddie. You know, just the like cleaning up the room montage, you know, to a like upbeat song and, and things like that that I think really separated it from the original. But it's I still think it's kind of scary and interesting. However, the rules don't make any sense to me. (laughs) I don't understand how he comes out and can do like dream magic in the real world. You know, based on some of the interviews that I've read and seen in in that documentary, Never Sleep Again, this is a situation where they, I don't think they really knew what they had with Freddy. I mean, there's, they famously cast somebody else to play Freddy Krueger because they didn't even realize that Robert England, you know, what he was a thing, was, yeah. was a thing. So, uh, you know, the idea to essentially have Freddy use a, a, an avatar so he can enter the real world is one thing. But you touched on it just a moment ago when you said that how if he's in the real world, he's still able to use his dream mag- magic. So right. th- there's very there's some there are some plot holes in the film. But I can tell you that. From my experiences rewatching this not too long ago, I find Freddy incredibly terrifying. And I think, actually, I know, I think the scariest death in the entire franchise happens in this film. And that is when Grady is killed in his bedroom with his parents banging on the door yeah, on the outside. Like, yeah. That is a well, terrifying death. Again, I think that's part of what the parent thing always made it so scary is like, you know, we kids would look to their parents to 
defend them if anyone got in their house or if anything happened. And that the parents are always so close by and completely, you know, impotent to protect them was always so scary. So yeah, that one where he's right outside and kind of the same thing as the mom, um, Ronnie Blakely in the original being right outside the bathroom door, you know, while Nancy's getting pulled under, you know, it was always kind of scary when the parents were right there. That scene plays out, you know, from the parents' point of view, like his actual death with just the uh-huh. you know, the razors going through the door and being slid down. And it's just, you know, he, Freddie famously becomes, well, Freddie becomes famous for these elaborate, over-the-top dream sequences where, you know, <laughs> whatever terrifies you is going to, you know, ultimately be your your downfall. But this one was just so to use a word you used earlier, just so primal in he didn't fuck around with him. He, he, he came out of Jesse's body. He was in the bedroom. He didn't make any jokes. He just subtly nods at him for just a moment. Freddie just nods yeah. at him for a moment. And, and it's just so I get chills thinking about it. to me. That is just such a powerful part of the film and why I have Elm street Two ranked much higher on my list than some of the other films. Jack Shoulder is a good director. I've heard various things about him, um, but the films that he has made, they're good films. I mean, I like his films, like the Wishmaster films. I like um, Alone in the Dark. I mean, he's a good director. So, And the, the score was great by Christopher Young, so it still had a lot of talents going on. It just kind of didn't, it didn't quite realize where the, the core of the power of Freddie was and it had a male protagonist which is very unusual yeah. for a horror film but and i kind of thought like I, like there's something sort of primal to that too like he's the new kid so you're already sort of an outsider and then Freddie is kind of the ultimate outsider and like what is worse than people thinking you're just kind of a weirdo than like Freddie, you know is the ultimate weirdo and he's you know trying to become you like, you know, you're trying to make out with a girl and Freddie's tongue is coming out of your mouth and, you know, and then he's trying to kill your sister. And I don't know, there's something I think at that age where you're not sure you're kind of finding your identity and not sure how dark you are, what kind of person you are, and that Freddie is trying to take you over is really there's something to that. Absolutely. Some iconic scenes from the film. Obviously, we always have to go back to the pool party scene. Which, yes. which is completely it, it's never it's never done again in any of the other films. I mean, this is he basically jumps out of the pool and just starts wrecking shit, for lack of a better term. I still find that scene very interesting, even though it's never revisited as far as him coming yeah. out in the real world. So I mean, you- I kind of I kind of wanted to know, I guess. I mean, there's an argument to be made like it's scarier what you don't know and whatever. But I, I still kind of wanted to know Freddie's motivations. You know, he could do so much in dreams. Why does he need to come out anyway? You know, he can get them all one at a time, take his time. I, I don't know. I never really understood why he wanted to get out in the first place. And then, or did he want to make the world a nightmare? I don't know. I could have used more explanation on that. But my favorite thing at the pool party is the kid who tries to talk him down. Yeah. He, you know? he says, everything's <laughs> going like, to be okay. We're not going to hurt you. It's going to be fine. You know, we'll <laughs> talk it out. <laughs> no. <laughs> and, he, and he gives that famous line where he says, you're all my children now, which again, that, that's probably the most famous line for that film. 
but that scene you're talking about where he is, you know, we're here to help. Or, you know, we want to help you. Right. And he, he just says, help yourself, fucker. Hey! Just calm down, right? Relax. Yeah. It's going to be all right. Nobody's going to hurt you. Just tell us what you want, all right? I'm here to help you. Help yourself, fucker! You are all my children now. You're right, because he doesn't seem to have clear motivation. I mean, in the first film, mm-hmm. he had clear motivation. This one doesn't really have clear motivation. Motivation, But I think that speaks to, you know, the writer of the film, David Chastain, not understanding the lore of Freddy Krueger that Wes Craven had created. Yeah, or or New Line not understanding yeah. it. You know, who knows where the orders come from. But, yeah, I don't. I, I think it's always been blurry in every single one of the films, the line between dreams and reality. Like even in the end of the first one, you know, she pulls him out. She just seems to know that pulling him out, he'll be able to be killed there, you know, in the real world. And but then he goes back in. But then are they in? You know, there's always right. kind of just this blurry thing. So I think that made it even harder in part two where he's out. It's like, yeah, but what does that mean? Exactly. The ending, to me, th- this film right, would be, I think, a better or a more well-received film if the, because the ending is just so nonsensical to me that I, I, I always, yeah. have, I always, and I don't mean that ending shot with the, on the school bus. I mean, the actual, right. like, how Freddie dies. Which he burns yes. and, yeah. And it's very forgettable. I mean, I can tell you, it's, you know, it wasn't, in fo- wasn't for watching the film. Not too long ago, if you were to say, well, how does Freddie die in part two? I'd be like, gosh, I don't even remember. It's- I had to throw it back on right after watching it. You know, I was like on maybe part four and I was like, wait, how did he die in two? You know, how did Jesse get back? And I couldn't remember. And I had to go back and check. So the Nightmare on Elm Street 2 is a financial success or excuse me, it was a financial success. It made money. I believe it made more money than the original, but it was critically lambasted as far as you know people that liked the first one i think a lot of people didn't really like the second one and i think new line and bob shea ultimately knew they had to sort of write the ship and they, right. they got wes craven to to write a screenplay now ultimately it was chuck russell and frank darabon that would take over the project but i'm wondering have you ever had an opportunity because it is available online to read. i just read it okay okay <laughs> I read it a couple days ago. Um, but one thing I want to say about part two that you reminded me of is very little of it is dreams. Exactly. Yeah. In fact, you know, and like how that boat was missed, you know, he kills you in your dreams. And so it's mostly it's again, that line is being blurred and Jesse is going through his everyday life and these things are happening and they're not even quite hallucinations, you know. I I don't know what's happening, but they're not dreams anyway. There's none of that. Like, I mean, I guess he might have. He does have a scene, I think, of not wanting to go to sleep, but it's just not as much about the dreams. That's a good point you uh, point out. I didn't even really think about that. That's a really good point. 
<laughs> yeah, it, it's strange. There, again, I still think there's more to be mined in this series because there are so many unanswered questions. Interesting. Okay, so yeah, but uh, Dream Warriors. So, so um, I did read the script the other day. Did you say you've read it? I read just uh, I read the first couple pages of it just to just to get an idea of because I heard it was very was radically different than the actual film that came out, but I haven't had a chance to read the whole thing. So was there any any highlights of Craven's version of Dream Warriors that stuck out to you that you would have liked to have seen on screen? You know, I'll tell you. The thing is, I went into it thinking it was going to be so different, that they totally did, you know, they trashed his script. And it is very different, but there is a lot still in there. The, the Dream Warriors that exist in film form would not exist without that original script. There's a lot still there. I think some of what it got rid of were some of his ideas. You know, again, like I was saying that that's his big strength is getting these ideas that take root. And the main idea I think that did not make it was that Freddy, by killing so many people in their dreams, like by taking the souls, you know, having the like body of souls or whatever he has gotten stronger so he can't be killed as easily as he could before. And as he has evolved, dreamers have evolved. And so these kids, these dream warriors, which makes it make a little more sense why they are the dream warriors is they are an evolution of dreamer that have been brought there because they each have a special gift that can fight Freddy. And like, so all of these kids in the movie, they're all just there at the center. But in the script, they've all just shown up in town, kind of like the stand or something. Okay. Oh, you know, they've all just kind of ended up there. And the only thing they have in common is that they have nightmares, but they can't always remember them. And they have all survived suicide attempts, which the suicide attempts are actually Freddie trying to kill them. You know, but people think they're suicide attempts. Anyway, so they have all survived somehow by these strengths so when they have those scenes you know like what's your special gift what's your special gift i can do this i can do this that's where it came from <laughs> and it was basically one person cannot fight freddy anymore you need a group to do it and that was west craven's main idea but the rest of it like nancy was not a superstar grad student <laughs> she was like you know tormented kind of closer to what her mom is a little bit uh in the first one and her dad has taken off around the country looking for something. And she has been following him and she's on the hypnosil. And so her hypnosil, she's having these hallucinations, but the hypnosil is not working anymore. And so now Freddie's, you know, coming back. But these people have kind of been drawn to the house where he was born. And so even though it's a different, like it doesn't get into the mythology of who his parents were or anything like that. But it did bring up the idea of Freddie's birth which then Dream Warriors, the film, or the Darabont, Chuck Russell version, did kind of develop into, okay, who was his mom? And where did Freddy come from? So, But there are a lot of things that are similar, like the kind of worm thing that eats her is in there. What else did I say was in there? There are a lot, there are a lot of similar things, like Kristen being able to pull people into her dreams and the TV kill. Those are all still in there. So it's not completely different, but there are some grosser kills. Okay. That I get why New Line would be like, yeah, we're not filming that. Because, <laughs> yeah, it gets a little graphic. Um, Kincaid does not die well. 
Okay. He does not survive. Okay. Okay. So we, yeah, we, gosh, yeah, because I don't want to get too graphic on the yeah, show. Yeah, they don't. You don't want that in your head. <laughs> but, but you have intrigued me enough that uh, I think later on tonight I'm gonna I'm gonna pull out the iPad and 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 really dive into yeah, this because it's worth a read because it is. I I get how he would be like, oh my gosh, what have they done? You know, to this because it's it's different enough. If you if you had just been working on it and sorted out your own kinks and then you see what they did, you'd be like, what? But removed all these years later, a lot of his ideas are still there. Now, for the listeners, I'm going to link in the show notes of this episode. Uh, 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 I'm going to link you to a website that has the script so you can read Wes Craven's original uh, script for A Nightmare on Elm Street Part 3. Uh, you mentioned that in the script, and I don't want to get too spoiled here because I want to I want to read it. But is Weston Hills Psychiatric Hospital even featured in the script? Yes. Okay. And where I'm not sure what they call it, I don't remember. But there is a psychiatric hospital. The Craig Wasson character is still there. It, like some of the names have been changed of some people. You know, characters are ever so slightly different. But Kristen is still there and the scene that is in the movie where Kristen is like having a freak out and Nancy comes in and finishes the rhyme that is in the script okay but Nancy just he realizes she kind of knows what's going on with these kids so he just brings her in but she didn't come there to study you know or to work there like in the movie okay um which was always kind of weirdly hard to believe like she just happened to show up at this dream institute you know where these kids are having the exact same dream that's haunted her seemed a little coincidental <laughs> there are a few things where i thought okay stuff has been cut here like she makes those leaps where she's like you can never lose an ability like that you just forget how to use it and it's like how do you know <laughs> you know and the same with like you each have a special gift how do you know you know, and and those things make more sense in the script. The Dream Warriors is almost universally agreed upon as being the the best of all of the Elm Street sequels. It is. Yeah, it's pretty important. Some have made the case, which I don't agree with, that it's the best of the Nightmare on Elm Street films. Yeah, growing up, it was very exciting to me. It was that was the one, the first scene I ever saw of a Freddy Krueger movie was from Dream Warriors, and I probably would have been about six. You're... And it was the Vane puppet sure. sleepwalker thing. I saw that just, you know, how for for the youngsters listening, you used to just flip the channels and you didn't know what you were watching. <laughs> you yeah. know, it didn't like pop up on the bottom of the screen. Nightmare on Elm Street, you know, part three. It, you didn't know what it was. So I saw that scene having no idea what it was from. Oh, that must have been brutal. And, and and like covering my eyes and everything. So this thing haunted me for years where I didn't know what movie that was from. But it was always this huge fear. So, yeah, Dream Warriors. It, and again, it's the one that brought in that like son of a hundred maniacs kind of thing um, of what happened to Freddie in the backstory. And so it was... And it got more fantastical. You know, it's definitely the most uh, kind of like what we would have now, you know, kind of like a Harry Potter-ish, like there are rules and it, it just had more of a classical fantasy structure to it maybe than a horror structure. Now, I'm wondering, because this is the movie that sort of catapults Freddy Krueger as, uh, dare I say, almost the protagonist of the film. There's the reason why people are going to see these movies. Not so much this one, but in subsequent films. But this this 
lights the fire for that. So I'm wondering, in Craven's original script that you read, is Freddy full of these puns and one-liners that are starting to come out in Dream Warriors? A little bit. Um, I mean, he says some darker things, maybe, too. But he also says some of the lighter stuff. You know, like he does, I want to say he does the, you know, making the jokes about TV and prime time. I want to say that was in the script. I mean, I know that kill is in the script. Um, Freddie has the television, you know. So I was actually expecting none of that to be in there. And the foundation of it, I feel like, was there. That's interesting. This is what Freddie becomes in the sub- subsequent films. Clearly someone latched onto that and said, that's the part I like and I want to run with it. And I think, honestly, they were probably, just for the longevity of the series and getting new, younger audiences, probably wise. Just because when I was little, that was what made him more brandable. You know, so maybe cinematically, you could argue that wasn't the smartest choice because it wasn't as scary. But it did get it out to more audiences and then everyone wanted to see what freddie was going to say next and you know he became more of a like max headroom or something which again you can say was bad but um i don't know i kind of i'm into embracing both sides of freddie okay what where does this film rank for you was this your next next to the original is this yeah this is the one right i think so definitely yeah okay i am this is the one that, because we talk about, you know, I saw the original one in 80, uh, 80 would have been 85, 86, because people, younger listeners have to remember, like when a film was in the theater, it wasn't three weeks later, it was available to stream video on demand. It was sometimes mm-hmm. six months, even a year before it would hit home video. And so I, I was seeing all these movies a la home video a year after they came out. So by the time I saw Nightmare on Elm Street 3, that would have been, even though the movie came out in 87, it would have been 88 when I saw the film. And mm-hmm. still young enough to have it be incredibly traumatic to me. And it's, along with the original one, it's still one I have a hard time watching by myself. I can't say that about the other ones, but I can say about these two ones. And this is the one I think is, and you tell me if you agree with me or not, but I think this is the most well-acted of the entire franchise even the cast is so good i mean you've got patricia arquette and lawrence fishburne and i mean it's it's a good one it's and and then you've got you know even though it wasn't west craven's original script frank darabont's very talented guy you know chuck russell's very talented it's it's a good movie i mean it again it feels a little chopped you never know with horror they get scared of them being long and you know some stuff may have been chopped out but I still think it's a really strong movie. Yeah, like horror movie aside, it's a good movie. Like just yeah, yeah like it's it's well put together. It's well, yeah. That's what I got from when I was watching it the other day. It's like they, even every actor in this, every every you know teenage actor they got, everybody from the right. from the stern doctor, yeah, the, Jennifer the nurse Rubin Ratch, yeah. and Bradley Gregg, who is I loved Bradley Gregg, um, who was the the um, puppeteer, you know, sleepwalker. Um, who was in like Stand by Me and things like that? It was it was a good cast and Angelo Badalamenti doing the music. Yeah, so, so it was it was pretty great. It it was the one. I mean, I definitely have had in my youth 
times where it was like, well, that's my favorite, even over the first one. And now, you know, that I'm older, I'm kind of like, no, the first one is it. But it's still it's still a very clear second. I think what we'll do there, Kelly, is we'll just stop the conversation there and we'll pick it up again next week because this has been really interesting. And I don't know if I'm going to have enough time to finish this conversation today. And I really... I really don't want us to skim over anything. So are you good to pick this up again next week? Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot to cover. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Kelly. And we'll we'll pick this up again next week. All right. Thank you so much. The How Is This Movie podcast is produced by Dana Buckler for Hidden Productions located in Ocala, Florida. Please follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at How Is This Movie. Like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash How Is This Movie. Of course, you can always email the show with questions or comments at hitmpodcast at gmail.com. And finally, to become a monthly supporter of this podcast and gain instant access to bonus episodes not available anywhere else, go to patreon.com slash How Is This Movie. You'll find 
find all the links to our social media in this episode's show notes. 